following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. I'm going to begin by addressing a very serious problem that occurred last week at the picnic. And that is that Chris outed me on something, and that is that I do not like speaking at the picnics. He's right about that. I don't care for it at all. I never have. I love the picnics themselves. I love going. But when you have to speak, and you guys know this on the other side as the listeners, right? It's just really hard because if you don't have a microphone, and typically in the history of of Cornerstone picnics, we have not had microphones, so you end up just screaming or yelling, trying to talk to the back row. And I've got a pretty, pretty loud voice. Jamie often tells me when we're talking in just about any context to be quiet a little bit because he's right next to me. Uh, But even then, you get done and your throat hurts. And so I was so glad Chris brought this up last week because that way now he has volunteered to take all future picnics for me. So thank you, Chris, wherever you went. There you are. You call me a coward? I call myself an opportunist. Mark chapter 13, we're going to read... For one final time, the entire chapter, all 37 verses, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look at verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but... Say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down or enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. 
but be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and finds you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray. Father, we come one more time now into Mark 13 to finish out our study here. You have been good to us and helped us, I think, to understand and have a, a right approach, I pray, to this passage, Jesus, to understanding your words and what you were intending to teach your disciples. And I pray that they have instructed us as well, and I pray that they will do so again today. Help us to understand, help us to see, and Lord, help us to to recognize our own hearts, and I think the struggles that we have as we talk about your return, as we wait for that time, as we live in a very fallen and broken world, as we await a perfect one, a kingdom that will never end, where righteousness reigns, and you've wiped away every tear. I pray that as we, as we wait, we will think carefully about you, who you are, and what it means to to wait for you and to live for you, to live out the gospel in this day and age in which you have placed us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how many of you remember these billboards that popped up back in 2011? Anybody? Okay, no? That's fine. Uh, this is the work of a guy named, named Harold Camping and his radio organization that was called Family Radio. I mean, they were all over the place, both locally and outside of our area. Uh, camping had come to genuinely believe, and I do think he was sincere. I mean, I could be wrong about that. He's dead now, so I don't know for sure. But I think he was sincere. He had come to, to genuinely believe that Jesus was going to come back on May 21st, 2011. And he and his followers spent literally millions of dollars to get that news out both across the country and around the world. In fact, I read one statistic this week, and I don't know if it's accurate or not, but they estimated that just on billboards alone, Camping and his followers probably spent about $5 million putting billboards out around the country. But as always, when men try to predict the return of Christ, he was wrong. In fact, the next day, these billboards popped up around the country uh, in their place. <laughs> that took way too long. I mean, all right, that's a joke. Uh, 
However, in reality, uh, it really wasn't a laughing matter at all because a lot of people were, were seriously duped by, by this man. Again, I think he was probably sincere, but they were duped nonetheless. I remember reading stories because it, it was all over the news nationally. I remember reading, I think it was on CNN, stories about people who had spent their life savings, sold houses, and cashed in stocks, retirement accounts, et cetera, et cetera, to give money to this because they so seriously believed that that Jesus was coming back on May 21st, 2011, and they wanted to help get the news out, and they were really struggling. Um, you know, even worse than that, as bad as that was, it had another effect, and is that it, it made all Christians look like idiots, which it tends to do whenever you have someone crazy out there saying these kinds of things, and it doesn't come to pass. The rest of us end up looking dumb with them. It became a punchline for late-night television hosts for weeks, and the whole notion of Christ's return was ridiculed. You know, camping did a lot of damage. He, he certainly wasn't the first guy to do this. I mean, I showed you a picture a few weeks ago of a booklet that came out in 1988 that my church, the church I attended at the time as a kid, was all in part in, got all into about how Jesus was coming back in 1988. He's not the first one to do it. He certainly won't be the last. It seems that trying to predict the date of Christ's return is a perennial subject of interest for both believers, uh, but also mainly for false teachers who want to garner attention for themselves. But I'm telling you this morning, folks, it's a fool's errand. It's, it's a fool's errand to try to do it. In fact, I'll go even further than that, and I will call any attempt to predict the date of Christ's return as a self-negating prophecy. Now, you've heard of self-fulfilling prophecies, right? If I say to you, I'm going to walk over, I'm going to punch Glenn in the face, right? I just want to see if he'd flinch. That's all. I was just curious. I wouldn't touch Glenn, actually. Uh, yeah, that'd be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I'm saying to you, though, when you try to predict the date of Jesus' return, you are making a, a self-negating prophecy because as soon as you make it, as soon as it comes out of your mouth, it's untrue, verifiably untrue. And the reason that I know that is because of these final verses that are here before us in Mark chapter 13. You know, we've come to the end of our time together in this chapter, and I really hope it's been a blessing for you to have walked through this together. We've been in it five weeks now. This is week number six. Um, I can say to you, just as I was reflecting on it a little bit this week, that I think in my eight years of preaching, and I hope I'm not exaggerating when I say this, I think it is or has been probably the most profitable and challenging study I've ever engaged in. Just pushing me to think and, and to try to be careful. It stretched me a lot, uh, corrected a lot of wrong thoughts and assumptions I've had for years. And in verses 3 and 4, you see the disciples ask Jesus a question. The question is, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And as you should know well by now, they're not just talking about one single event. As they say to him, these things, they're actually talking about two different events. One of them is the destruction of the temple that Jesus had just predicted there in verses 1 and 2. And the other one is the end of the world that they assume will happen at the same time. However... These two events are not simultaneous. They don't go together. And so Jesus, in his answer, has been trying to separate these two things. And in case you're new, in case you have missed one or all of my previous five sermons up to this point, my basic premise all along has been that in attempting to separate these two events, Jesus spends a certain amount of time giving information and details related to one of those events, and then he gives a certain amount of time to details and information related 
to the other event. My premise has been that everything you see Jesus talking about here from verse 5 all the way to verse 31, all the way there, I know all the stuff we read just a moment ago, that all of that has to do with the impending judgment that God is bringing on Jerusalem, on the temple, and on its system of worship, and that therefore everything after that has to do with another event. And I'm not going to review any of that this morning. If you, if you don't know why I'm saying that, if you heard verses that I was reading a moment ago and you're confused because you weren't here, you're going to have to go back and just listen to it on your own. They're all on the website, so please do so. But, but having addressed now their question regarding the signs and times of the end in relation to the destruction of the temple, beginning here in verse 32, Jesus now wants to address their questions about signs and times in relation to the end of the world and of his eventual return. And compared to the first answer, this one is, I mean, very different, right? I mean, you can just see it, just even just a quick glance, you can see it. I mean, in explaining the first event, he gives them a list of concrete signs as well as a list of things that aren't signs at all. He uh, gives them uh, some action items of what to do when they see these events occurring. He gives them a general time frame and sequence of, of events and how they're going to play out. It's a really long answer. It has a lot of details, uh, and in verse 31, it's done. And now, beginning in verse 32, you see a very short answer with almost no details, really no details given at all, in response to the second question. And so what I want to do today is just to walk us through these verses quickly, as quite frankly, there just isn't that much information there for me to, to develop for us. But then I want to take a few moments just to challenge us in general with how we should think about and approach the subject of Christ's return, particularly in terms of how God, I think, approaches us in thinking about some of that, because it's, it's an important subject. Here in verse 32, you can begin to see the sharp grammatical and logical uh, break that I showed you a few weeks ago as I was attempting to help you understand the flow of Jesus's argument here in, in these verses. In verse 32, he says, but concerning that day, singular, or that hour, singular, no one knows. And the reason that this stands out is because everything uh, in verses 5 to 31 was, was plural. It was these things, those things, these days, those days. And all of those events were tied together with a series of sequence words, then, after, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And now you get to verse 32, and Jesus is very clearly breaking the sequence and changing the subject. You can hear the sequence break with the word but, okay? So da-da-da-da-da, but, okay? So he's, he's shifting sequence now. And you can also see the subject change with the reference to a specific day and hour that has not been addressed up to this point. And this is a major reason why I think that everything before this was referring to one event and everything after is referring to another, the end of the world return of Christ. And so in regards to this event, notice just very quickly and simply, there are no signs given and there are no times indicated. In fact, on the timepiece, you have quite the opposite. As you can see here in verse 32, Jesus emphatically says, no one knows. No one. And, and to make it even more emphatic, he, he says a few things that used to really, really confuse me. I mean, I'm being just transparent with you, but, but I think I understand them better now. He says, no one knows, not even the angels nor the Son, but, 
but, but only the Father. And, and this used to confuse me. In fact, I used to call Mark 13, 32 the hardest verse in the New Testament. I mean, I just said that about probably six months ago or eight months ago. I was asked to be a part of an ordination council for a guy uh, I know who was being ordained. And so we're sitting there, and you know, if you've never seen or an ordination council or know what goes on, it's a time for you to like shoot zingers at the person to see how they handle it just for fun because they're on the hot seat and they can't do anything about it. So I asked him to explain this verse, and he was like, uh... It's, it was a hard verse for me, and I'm just curious what he thought. And the reason that I think it was, I thought it was so hard was because of this. How could Jesus, who is supposed to be co-equal with God, uh, co-equal with the Father in every way, how can he not know something that the Father knows? Right? I mean, okay, so we say that God is omniscient. He knows all things. We say that Jesus is God, so, you know. Logic now sets in. He should know all things, so how can he not know this? Do you see the problem? Well, I think the problem is actually with us, because I think, again, we're reading it like Amelia Bedelia. I said a moment ago that, and if you weren't here for two weeks ago, sorry, that didn't make any sense, but you know, I said a moment ago that I have called this verse the hardest verse to understand in the New Testament. You understand, though, that's not literally true, because to say that would indicate that I have somehow put together a list of verses that I find very difficult, that I keep them like in my back pocket, and that I put them in an order so that Mark 13, 32 is number one, and there's another one that's number two, and then three and four and so on. Well, that's not literally true. I haven't actually done any of that. When I called it the hardest verse in the New Testament, I'm just using hyperbole, one of my children's favorite words now because they hear me talk about it so often. Hyperbole is... It's just a normal figure of speech, a normal expression. It's, it's exaggeration for effect. It's, it's overstating something in order to make a point. And I, listen, if I've told you this once, guys, I've told it to you a million times, haven't I? All right. That was hyperbole. I, I think Jesus is being hyperbolic here. I don't know how to say that word. He's, he's using hyperbole here. He's trying to overemphasize a fact to them, and that fact is that no one knows the time of the end. No one. It's not for us to know, so don't, so don't worry about it. You don't need signs and times for that one, because that information belongs to God alone, not to us. And this, by the way, is how I know that, that every prophecy that man makes about the the coming, second coming of Jesus, you know, it's going to happen on such and such a date. This is how I know that it is wrong because either they know the date and Jesus is wrong or Jesus is right, they don't know the date and they're wrong. I'm going to probably side with Jesus most times on that, on that question. This is why I call them self-negating prophecies. No one knows. If you ever have someone trying to tell you uh, that they figured something out or that God has revealed something to them about Christ's return, I want you to do something for me in all Christian love, okay? If you, if you run across a person like this, if they tell you, hey, Jesus is coming back on such and such a day, in your mind, I want you to pull up the picture that you keep of them in your memory, and I want you to scroll down the list of options that's next to it, and I want you to mark the box for crazy. Okay, right there. <laughs> Check it. In all Christian love, keep moving. I'm not being mean, I'm just, no one knows. I actually, not in the notes, uh, <laughs> always, always dangerous. No. So uh, Leslie Stenmans, yeah, there she is. She's like, what did I do? Uh, her parents were in town a few weeks ago when we started the series, and afterwards uh, her dad came up and I'm like, man, this was such a blessing. She was telling a story about her mother, uh, Leslie's mom, was involved with some lady who was 
doing the very thing I'm making fun of right now, who was telling her, listen, Jesus is coming back on such and such, and such a date. And <laughs> Leslie da- Leslie's dad said, well, did you ask her if she's open for business the next day? I was like, that's a fair question. And she says Jesus is coming back, but she's got office hours for the day after. Hmm, that's a little weird. You get the point. Can I emphasize this any more to you? Uh, no, but Jesus can. He says so because no one knows the day or the hour of his return. Here in verse 33, he gives them a simple command. I mean, he did the same thing in verses 5 to 31. He gave them some practical responses to his teaching. This is the same thing here. But this time, the response is to be on guard and to keep awake. It's the idea of watching and waiting, okay? Just be watching and waiting. That's it. And that's our responsibility in regards to the return of Christ. We're to watch and wait. And do you know why we're supposed to watch and wait? Well, look at verse 33. It's because no one knows. <laughs> no one knows the time when he's going to come back. He said it again. It could be any time. And this is what we call in theological terms the imminency of Christ's return. That Christ can come back at, at any moment. That we're not looking for a sign. We're not, we're not waiting for a date. It could happen before we leave this building. It could be another thousand years. We don't know. So we just have to watch and wait. And to drive that responsibility home, again, like he did in the previous section, he uses a parable. To make it stand out. He says here in verse 34, it's like a man who's going on a journey. When he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. So let's just make sure it's clear, okay? So you got a guy who's got some money, obviously. He's got servants. He's got a property. He's got an estate. He wants to go off on a journey. So as he's leaving, he wants to make sure that the estate keeps running. So he's got all the servants. Hey, you do this, you do that, you do that. But there's one guy whose job it is, his particular job is to be the doorkeeper. He's like part bouncer slash security guard and part herald, all mixed into one. So if anyone's coming into the the house that shouldn't be there, onto the estate, it's his job to to see that, to know it, and to stop them. Or if he sees people coming that the master may want to know about, it's his job to to let him know, to tell him. So as such, it's it's an important job. He stays awake. He's watching. There's no police. There's no communication systems. He's got an important job. Therefore, just like the doorkeeper, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you all, what I say to you, I say to all, stay, stay awake. Watch. Wait. The master of the house will come. Do you know when? Nope, sure don't. So watch and wait. That's it. That's all he gives on the second question. He's answered their questions now. They wanted to know the signs and times of Jesus' return, uh, or excuse me, of the destruction of the temple and of the end of the world. He separated those two questions out. He's answered both of them in different ways, different uh, different ideas. And, And as you can see here in relation to the second one, it's very simple. It's very clear in relation to his return. No one knows when it will happen, so just watch and wait. But what does that mean for us practically? You know, you think about that question, and it's a tough one, I think, for us. You know, and I want to just take our, our, our final minutes here and just kind of exhort you, challenge you, hopefully encourage you a little bit, more just on the personal and pastoral level than anything else here. Because I've been thinking about Mark 13, or as I've been thinking about Mark 13, something very obvious has stood out to me. You know, Jesus is talking about two different events here. In relation to the first one, the destruction of the temple, he... Uh, I realize that the guys who are, he's saying this to, most of them are going to get to see 
the fulfillment of these very specific and detailed prophecies. Uh, not all of them will. James, who's one of the people asking the question, he's the first of the disciples to be put to death, to be martyred. So this is going to happen within just a few years after Jesus' death. He will not get to see it. But his brother John is going to live until at least A.D. 95. So he will get to see the fulfillment of these things. It's about 40 years after Jesus is saying this that the temple is destroyed. And so there's, there's guys standing here listening to this who will see the fulfillment of this specific set of prophecies. But in relation to the second set about Jesus' return, the end of the world, obviously none of them are going to live to see that. You know, it's been almost 2,000 years now since Jesus said these words and it's still, he still hasn't returned. Now, here we are still saying it could happen at any time. Here we are still saying that the responsibility is to watch and wait. And because of that, I think that we are tempted to be like the scoffers that Peter talks about in 2 Peter 3, who say, where is the promise of his coming? Where? Because ever since the fathers fell asleep, ever since they died, everything just continuing on like it has in the, since the beginning of creation. And maybe we're not tempted to think that way, but we are definitely tempted to live that way. Every one of us, I think. I mean, sure, we may affirm that Jesus is coming again, but that affirmation doesn't show itself in our everyday lives, in our decisions, in the things we pursue, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's like telling a teenager that one day they're going to grow old and die. They may affirm that that's accurate because they're smart enough to know, okay, yep, everyone dies someday, so someday I'm going to die. But how many teens do you know that actually live differently because of that knowledge? Right, very few. They don't have the maturity to do that, nor do most of us. And I think that's kind of how we live in relation to the return of Christ. Well, it's been so long. I mean, yeah, I know he's coming again. It can happen any time, but it's been 2,000 years. It probably won't be today. We don't say that. We don't actively think that. But that is the feeling in our hearts. And because of that, it is hard to watch and wait. Can I share with you a passage that has been heavy on my heart Throughout the study of Mark 13, I think I shared it with you a few weeks ago just in passing, but I want to do it in a little more detail here. It's Paul's words to Titus in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. He says to him, for the grace of God has appeared. And I want to just stop and think about that for a moment. We homeschool our kids, and I teach two subjects for our children. I teach math and I teach grammar. And, and just this week, we were talking about nouns and concrete and abstract nouns. A concrete noun is something you can touch, okay? You can feel, you can look at it, it's got mass, you can see it. Air is a concrete noun. You might be able to see it with your eyes, but you can definitely feel it. And if you had a microscope, you could see it. Versus an abstract noun, which is an idea. Love is a wonderful thing. You know, you can't hold love. You can't put it under a microscope and observe it. Notice here that he is talking about an abstract noun. For the grace of God has appeared. A, an idea that is not normally visible has come in some kind of visible form and has brought salvation for all people. Well, who or what is he referring to? He's referring to Jesus, right? He's referring to the gospel of what Jesus has accomplished for us in his death on the cross. And I want you to notice specifically in verse 12 what he says, the grace of God appearing in human form in Jesus and in the gospel, what it is doing, it is training us. 
It's like, a, it's like a personal trainer who's there with you at all times, who's teaching and training you specifically in two aspects. Number one, it is training you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. So anything in your life that doesn't match up with, with God's standards, with who he is, is teaching you to renounce those things, as well as all the worldly passions that, that your heart so desperately longs for, more perhaps than you even realize. Those pleasures, possessions, pride things we've talked about in the past, the grace of God is teaching us, it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And then secondly, in place of that, it's training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And as we're doing all of this, Paul says, something else is kind of rumbling under the surface. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And the question that I want to ask us, the one that's been on my mind, is why does he call the return of Christ our blessed hope? Or, or maybe to ask it in a different way that I think is a bit more convicting and to the point of where my heart has been, why don't we see the return of Christ as being our blessed hope? I mean, he says it is our blessed hope, so, so if I examine myself and go, do I see it that way? No. Why not? May I just answer it very directly for us, kind of cut to the chase? It is because I think we have put far too much hope in far too many other things. Now, I'll illustrate it for you perhaps in a funny way uh, that many of you, if you grew up in church at all, may be able to relate to. If you didn't, that's fine. But I remember being a kid, being a teenager, sitting in a church service somewhere, and the pastor or the preacher is preaching on the return of Christ. And as he's doing this, and he's talking about what's going to happen, and da-da-da-da-da, and it's going to... In my mind, here's what's going through my head as he's talking. Jesus, please don't come back until I can get married and you know. You know. Hey, look, I'm just being honest, all right? The guys in the room understand, all right? I'm not, I'm not alone in this. Others of you have thought the same thing too, maybe not in the exact same way. Maybe it feels like, Lord, please don't come back until I can get married and have kids because kids make life wonderful, right? No. Uh, please don't come back until I can pursue my career. Please don't come back until I can fulfill this dream. Please don't come back until whatever. You know, there's no one of those that's more or less silly than the other ones in any way, shape, or form, because in each and every example, what we're doing is we're pitting Jesus on this side versus whatever else on this side, and when we, you know, do the scales, the other things are far more valuable. We think the other things would bring us far more happiness, joy, and satisfaction than Jesus returning and us spending eternity with him ever would, and so we don't want him to come back because we, want, we wanted that stuff as, you know, in his place. Uh, I have bad news for us all. This isn't just a past tense problem. You know, we, we still struggle with this to this very day. We, we do not see Jesus as being our blessed hope because we continue 
to put our hope in so many other things. We still think that the things of this world will bring us happiness, joy, and satisfaction, even though they never do. And we see that. We're, we're the most like, what is the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for a different result, right? Yet we keep going back to the same things over and over again, hoping for a different result. That Somehow now this time it'll bring us happiness. This time it'll bring us satisfaction. This time it'll bring us joy. And it never works. What's the solution to this? Well, can I suggest it's the grace of God? It's, it's Jesus? That the ability to watch and wait for his return and to see it as our blessed hope is a part of the process of sanctification that each of us has to pursue in faith and in dependence on the Spirit. And as I've been thinking about this, and, and I could probably take this in a lot of different directions, I want to go down one specific avenue, and I'm not saying that this is the only way this plays out, but just it's the way that it's been playing out in my mind, okay? So just bear with me for a moment. I want to think of this in relation to trials. Trials, tribulations, problems that come up in your life, etc., etc. Have you ever considered the fact that perhaps God allows certain things, certain events, certain problems and difficulties and trials to show us how broken we are and how much we need him? To show us how broken this world we live in and think we love so much, to show us how broken it really is, and then to, as Lewis referred to it, severe mercy, detach our, our happiness and our, our hopes and our affections from it. When, when it comes to the love of this world, we're like a tick. You ever had a tick bite? You know, it bites and it embeds itself a little bit into your skin, and you can pull, but it's not going to let go. What do you have to do to get it to let go? You have to make it want to let go. Strike a match, put the hot tip on it until it wants to let go, to get away. You have to apply a little pain, so to speak, in order to, to get it to, to want to let go of its hold of you. And, and I think in a similar way, that's part of God's purpose in allowing trials in our lives to make us let go of this world. I've been reading a book now. I've been reading it for like, well, I started in January, so I'm still reading it. Um, it's called Wise Counsel. It's a series of letters. I've never read a book like this. It's a series of letters between John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. He lived in the uh, mid-1700s. And a, a young pastor named John Ryland Jr. And, and Ryland, I don't know how old he is. I guess he's about 20 at the time they start their correspondence. And, and Newton's probably in his late 50s at that time. And so Newton just sort of takes Ryland under his wing and gives him counsel and advice and thoughts and et cetera, et cetera. And um, in one of the letters, Ryland had been struggling with some difficulties in a particular area, in a particular situation. He was struggling with some things. And Newton, in writing back to him, gave him this little comment. Just listen very carefully to this. He says, God often puts thorns in the pillows of our idolatry so that we don't rest too comfortably on them. Now, I just trimmed my rose bushes a little bit and got pricked to death doing so. And I was picturing that in my pillow. You know, here I'm trying to lay down at night. Ow, ow, ow. I just want to sleep, right? I just want to lay down in it. Well, eventually, what do you do? You throw out the pillow. That God in his mercy sometimes puts thorns 
in the pillows of our idolatry so that we cannot rest too comfortably on them. It reminds me that that God isn't cruel. He doesn't delight in our sorrow or our problems. He doesn't afflict people for his amusement. Rather, he loves us too much to let us go on blindly pursuing things that will never fully satisfy and that will ultimately hurt us in the end. And so he trains us. He teaches us. It's his grace to do this. He trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions by using trials and tribulations of living in a broken world to detach our affections from this broken world. He cuts us free from those things. Listen, a knife in the hand of a criminal whose purpose is to murder you is a dangerous thing, right? But a knife in the hand of a surgeon whose purpose is to heal you and restore your life It's a beautiful thing. It's it's a beautiful thing. One wants to cut to bring pain and, and harm. The other cuts, yes, inflicting pain, but ultimately to bring our good. And folks, our father is he's a he's a surgeon. He's he's the best surgeon. He's the one who knows exactly what is wrong in our hearts and in our lives. He's the one who knows how to cut perfectly each and every time to remove those things. From us. He cuts out those areas that need cutting. He allows pain and trials and suffering to show us that there is no hope in this world. To show us that our only hope is Jesus, that He truly is our blessed hope. Folks, we I don't think, I mean I could be wrong, but I don't think we're going to truly be able to come to watch and wait for Jesus Christ and his return to see it as the blessed hope that that Paul calls it here until God in his grace, in his mercy, detaches our love from all the other things that we want to put our hope in and reattaches those things to him. So I I don't know what trials you're going through. I don't know what pains you're feeling. I don't need to know. I just know that whatever those things are, at least part of the reason, and I'm not, again, claiming that this is everything, but at least part of the reason, part of the purpose for them is to detach your hopes from things in this world and reattach them to Jesus alone. And if you will embrace that process, then you will find the hope of Christ will turn will become sweeter and more important to you every single day. Will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, we recognize and affirm the things you have said here. You are coming again. We're not waiting on any signs. We don't need any prophets to tell us when it is. It could be at any moment, any hour. We look forward to that as much as we can, but the reality we we recognize is that our hearts are so tied to the things of this world that it is very difficult for us to think about your return and see it as the blessed hope that Paul refers to it there in Titus chapter 2. And so, Lord, I would ask two things. One, I would ask for you, the perfect surgeon, to bring trials and and problems and and pains even into our lives that are designed to, to cut those attachments and reattach them to yourself. It is a tender mercy for you to do this. It sometimes is not pleasant. We sometimes don't love it. Often we don't love it. No one loves 
to go through hard times, but yet you're a perfect surgeon. You never make a mistake. And so we, we ask for that. Detach our hearts from this world. Reattach it to you. And Lord, for, for the, the trials and things that we're already in, for the, I pray that you will help us to look at them differently. To remember what, what Greg read earlier, that we have a throne of grace that we can run to with every trial, knowing that you, Jesus, are the perfect high priest who has experienced every trial, every suffering, every temptation. We're not alone. You're, you're there constantly pleading our case before the Father. And, and so we can come. We've been told to come boldly and to lay those things before you. Help us to understand that, to see that, and to have a right view of the trials of life that either we're in now or that are coming. That we are so foolish. I, I know John Newton was just a man, but I'm reminded even as I'm praying right now of his words to Ryland when he said that God gives us, you give us 96 or 97 blessings, but for the lack of the three or four, or the, the slowness in getting them, we forget them all. And I, and I see that in our lives all the time. So help us to remember your many blessings and even in the trials to be thankful and to trust you through it all. Jesus, come quickly. This is a broken world. We're broken. There's no hope here. There's no hope in money. There's no hope in possessions. There's no hope in pleasures. There's no hope in pride. Our hope has to be in you alone. So we give ourselves to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.